theyeshiva.net. I want to learn with you today a few psukim of Parshas Vayishlach. But before, let's remember the context of the narrative. Yaakov has fled his home already at the end of Parshas told us. He left his home in Be'er Sheva in the Holy Land and he relocated to a place called Haran. Today they call it Haran. Today it's in southern Turkey on the border of Turkey, Syria and Iraq, northern Iraq, where he remains with his father, with the man who would become his father-in-law, also his uncle, Lavan, for 20 years. There he marries Leah and marries Rachel and Billa and Zilpah and most of his children are born over there by Lavan, all of his 11 children, including Dina, his daughter, besides one. And finally, after 20 years in the home of Lavan, Yaakov, together with Rachel and Leah, decide it's time to leave, and they leave. Yaakov is now moving with his entire entourage back to Eretz Yisrael, where he came from, back to the home where he grew up in, the home of his parents. It's at this point when Vayishlach opens up, Yaakov decides to do something that is quite unique. He decides to reach out to his brother. Twenty years they haven't had any contact, as far as we know. According to Chazal, it's not only 20 years, it's 34 years, because we have a missing gap of 14 years in the history of Yaakov, which our sages explain he spent at the yeshiva of Shema Nevra and the way from his parents' home, so that would make it another 14 years, so it's 34 years. According to the Chumash, the straight text, it's certainly two decades. He sends messengers to Esau, reaching out for camaraderie, reconciliation, peace. As he puts it, I came to find favor in your eyes. The messengers come back and they say, we arrived to your, we came to your brother, to Esau. He's actually advancing towards you with 400 men. Yaakov assumes these 400 men are not here to uh, create a parade of honor for Yaakov, but this is a declaration of war. And he's frightened. It says Yaakov is, is not just frightened, but Yaakov ma'oid. He's, his fear is excessive, it's intense. He's stressed. And he devises a plan. He prepares for war. He prays to Hashem, and he also sends a very large, lavish gift to his brother, an enormous an enormous quantity of livestock, of animals, that he sends with different messengers and different groups to appease or to try to create harmony between him and Asaph. That's how the story develops. We all, of course... Wait for the moment when they're going to meet. That moment comes in Perik Lamed Gimel, chapter 33. 
Yaakov lifts up his eyes. This is page 97 in the Blue Chamash. Yaakov lifts up his eyes and Esav is there. And there's 400 people. The messengers were not exaggerating. They were not lying. There are 400 people coming. Yaakov splits up the family into different groups. He goes in front of everybody. And Perik Lamed Gimel, Pasuk Gimel. Chapter 33 of Genesis, verse 3. For whoever lifneim, he passes before everybody. He prostrates himself to the ground, to the earth, seven times. Which means he goes down once, and then he'll go down another six times. Prostrating himself until he approaches his brother. So there's a series of seven times bowing down. Each time getting closer till to his brother. What are we supposed to expect now to happen? Yaakov was frightened of war. That's why he devised all this plan, all these plans of gifts and prayer and war. What happens at this moment? Posigdalid. Vayarats Esav Likrasai. Esav departs from the 400 men, runs towards Yaakov who's bowing down. And he hugs him. He falls on his neck. And he kisses him. And they both weep. He lifts up his eyes. He sees the women, the children. He wants to know who all these people are. He wants to know what all these gifts are. He refuses to take them. I have enough. And in Pasuk Yud, Yaakov says, Don't refuse. I have found favor in your eyes. Take my gift. Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. And in Pasikir Aleph, he says, Take my bracha. Rashi says it means my gift. Take my bracha, my gift that I have brought to you. And he begs him and Esav takes it. Esav offers to travel together with him. Yaakov says, no, let my master go ahead. One day I'll arrive to your land, Seir. And that's the end of the story. Esav offers to leave some people there. Yaakov says there's no need. Esav goes back home to Seir. And Yaakov goes home to relocates to a place called Sukkos. That's the last time we'll ever hear of a conversation between Yaakov and Esav. It's not that they're not mentioned again. Obviously they're mentioned again. And later in the portion, we're going to have Yitzchak passing away. And Esav and Yaakov are both there at the burial. So they certainly meet up again at the funeral of Yitzchak. We don't know of a conversation then, but this is the last encounter in terms of a conversation and exchange between these two brothers. Now, the student reading the story asks one question. What happened? Did the messengers get it wrong? Did Yaakov underestimate his brother? He was preparing for war. He said this whole lavish gift. Something happened. He bowed down and Esav ran over. And instead of trying to kill him, he hugs him, he falls on his neck, he kisses him, he weeps. Now I know that in school you have learned different Midrashim that he tried to bite his neck and he wanted to kill him. There are different interpretations. But the reason there are so many different interpretations is... Because the text says one clear story. 
And the story is, he runs to him, he hugs him, he falls on his neck, he kisses him, and they weep. Which arises the question, what happened to the enmity of Esau? What happened to the animosity of Esau? So some say, therefore, there is a hidden story. Rashi himself gives different interpretations. Rashi says, Esau's compassion was just triggered when he saw Yaakov bowing down. Rashi even says that there's an argument how to interpret the kiss of Esau. Reb Shimon ben says that at that moment, it was as genuine as it gets. He kissed him with his entire heart. Reading that text on that literal level, following that thought process, what happened? Was it just an impulsive thing, perhaps? Esau is a moody guy. <laughs> sometimes you want to kill somebody and sometimes you like somebody. Okay. Are there any clues in the story to what created this transformational shift of a state where you wanted to kill your own brother? You vow to yourself that when your father dies, you're going to kill this boy for what he has done to you, your sibling. Yaakov expects nothing less and is frightened and prays to Hashem, please help me. I'm afraid that mothers and children will all be murdered on the same day when I confront my brother Esav to an absolute 180 degree turn where there's no remnant of hatred, only kissing, hugging, and crying, both of them crying together, which we both know is a sign of profound vulnerability and reconciliation. Both of them kissing each other, crying and embracing each other, and Asa falling on his neck, which means there was no distance, no physical distance, and no emotional distance, at least at that time. Well, there is more than a clue in the story, because between Ace of preparing for war, praying to Hashem, sending a bribe or a gift, doesn't say a bribe, sending a gift to Esau, and the actual meeting, there is one more story. That story was and always remains one of the most mysterious stories of the Tanakh. And I should say really all the stories in the Tanakh have a mystical and mysterious dimension to them. There's not a single story in Torah that you finish reading it and you're like, ah, and they lived happily ever after. (laughs) You will not ever find such a story in the entire Tanakh because these stories are not made to put you to sleep. Story that's made to put you to sleep, it ends up on the rosy, homey, good feeling and sentimental, they lived happily ever after. These stories are intended to wake you up. And stories that are intended to wake you up must have a very different ending than stories that are intended to put you or your children to sleep. So, let's see the story that goes, that's placed strategically, obviously, in between the preparations, the dread, the drama, and the actual meeting, which is surprisingly so loving and beautiful and wholesome. And for this, I ask you to open up your Chumash to Perik Lamed Beis Pasuk Chafei. If you have the Hebrew Chumashim, it's page 96. You could look with somebody or you could just listen by heart. I'm especially reading it inside because the text is always important, but we want to highlight a few special nuances and expressions in this text. Page 96, Perik Lamed Beis Pasuk Chafei, Genesis 32, verse 25. 
Let's remember the story Yaakov sent all the gifts to Esau. All the animals were sent off with messengers. He told them exactly what to say. He wants them to create space between the groups and between the flock. He wants this to be very impressive, very enticing, very appealing. And night comes, and Yaakov sleeps over that night in the camp. Remember, he has all of his children. He has his wives. He has all of his servants. And, of course, enormous amount of animals. Yaakov, at that point, was extremely wealthy and affluent, as we learned at the end of Ayatzeh. He wakes up in the middle of the night, he takes his wives, he takes his 11 children, they, they, um, they pass a space called Mavar, Mavar Yabok, a river, you could go visit it today, the Jabok River, I think they call it, it's called here, Nachal Yabok, the river of Yabok, and everything he passes over the other side of the river, remember he's on the way from Iraq, Turkey, into Eretz Yisrael, coming from the east to the west, he passes Mavar Yabok, they are now on the other side of the river. We would expect that Yaakov is with them. He crossed the river with them. He helped everybody get over. But apparently he went back, even though the Chumash doesn't say that. But it does say, Vayivoser Yaakov Levate. There's a moment when Yaakov remains alone. And our sages understand, everyone passed the river, crossed the river together with Yaakov, and then he went back. The big question is, why would he go back? But the text doesn't address that. Vayivoser Yaakov Levate. Yaakov remains alone. We know that it's the middle of the night because it says in Chav Gimel, he stood up during the night. So this is an experience in the middle of the night. He's alone. And a man wrestles with him until dawn breaks. Until the first rays of light show up on the horizon, which are called, the time that's called Aloy Sashachar. Don't confuse Alois HaShachar with Neitzacham. In Hebrew, there are two terms. Neitzacham is sunrise. Alois HaShachar is dawn break. And those of you who are early bird risers know that there is at least an hour difference be- usually between Alois HaShachar and Neitzacham. It's a significant amount of time. Alois HaShachar means the darkness is breached. You can already experience the ray, the rays, the glimmer the remnants, not the remnants, the rays of light of the sun that will soon rise, but you can't see the sun yet. The sun has not risen enough yet. Neitzacham is the actual ball of the sun has emerged on the horizon and therefore the brightness is far more intense. Till Alois HaShachar, till dawn break, till morning ascends, Shachar is morning, till morning ascends, this battle continues. One stops and asks, wait, He's with his family, they cross the river, Yaakov somehow is alone, and a man wrestles with him till dawn breaks. And he sees that he can't defeat him. He can't get him. And he touches his kafirechai, or he wounds, or he maims, or he touches kafirechai, which is his sciatica, his sciatic nerve. That socket, that nerve in, in the hip and the thigh. And the sciatica of Yaakov is dislocated during this battle. And he says, send me away. It's morning. Send me away. Isn't that a good reason to send me away? It's morning. I gotta go. No way. I don't send you away until you bless me. I need your blessing before I send you away. 
So he says, what's your name? So he says, Yaakov. So he says, No, 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 Yaakov should not be your name anymore. Kim Yisrael. Why? Because you, you battled. You battled with God and with people and you prevailed. So Yaakov asks a question, Please tell me your name. And he says, Why do you ask such questions? <laughs> Come on. What do you ask me for my name? And he blesses him there. End of the story. All we know after that is Yaakov gives this place a name. It's called Pniel. Pnei Kale, because I saw God face to face and my soul was saved and then the sun has risen. As he moves from Pnuel back to his family, he got across the river again and we know that he's limping. And by the way, Jews will not touch that part of the animal's body until this very day because of what happened to Yaakov. We will not eat the Gid Hanasha. It's non, not kosher food. End of story. Chapter 33, Yaakov picks up his eyes and who does he see? He sees his long lost brother Esau with 400 men. Yaakov prepares for this moment. The moment he's been preparing for for all of these previous days. He bows down, and then that encounter of love happens. It behooves us to conclude that this story in between has some powerful clue as to the encounter between Yaakov and Esau. But what is it? The text of Torah has so many layers, it really has infinite layers. And we understand why it has infinite layers. If it's a divine document... So God is infinite, so the Torah is infinite. Which is why the Arizal says that every Pasuk has 600,000 interpretations. Why 600,000? Because every soul has its own interpretation of the Pasuk. So even if you have heard 500,000 interpretations for a Pasuk, you still got 100,000 to go. And when we say a pasik, there's a pasik and a halacha and a mitzvah and a law and a story, every detail. There's the famous expression, shivim panam Torah. Torah has 70 faces, which means even if you have explored 69 dimensions, which is a little easier than 500,000, you're still not done. There is one more face, one more angle. A face is an angle, a perspective. And they're written in such a way that they lend themselves to so many different angles and perspectives. And they don't compete against each other. Each one contains a truth. And sometimes one contains a truth for one soul that is unique to this soul, and another soul may see it in a different way, in a different perspective. Here are the clues. The clues always are contained in the questions. A few questions. Question number one. Yaakov remained alone. What does alone mean? What would you say? What does alone mean? In English, simple English. We have the word levad in Bereshis. Levada. What does levado mean? Alone. It's not good for a person to be alone. 
Therefore, Hashem says, let me create Chava, let me create Ezer Kenegda, a spouse for him, a help for him. Levad means alone. Vayivoser Yaakov Levada, I would say, means Yaakov remains alone. A moment later you say, Someone battled him till dawn break. I thought he was alone. Oh, so he wasn't alone. There were two people. Somebody was hiding in the closet. So he wasn't alone. He thought he was alone. Is that how we have to say it? It says, I thought you were alone. Okay. He sees he can't get him. Who? How do you give me such a pronoun without identifying? Tell me who. You give me a verse. He sees he can't get him. Who sees he can't get who? Does Yaakov see that the Ish can't get him? Or does the Ish see that Yaakov can't get him? I don't know. Next, he touches his sciatica. Who? Okay. Oh, now I have a name. It's Yaakov's. So as I'm reading the verse, I don't know who's doing what. I don't know who sees that he can't be defeated. I don't know who touches whom. At the end it says, Yaakov's sciatica was affected. Next Pasuk. I'm expecting, you gave me a name, now I'll figure out the story. And he says, Shalcheni, send me. Who? Who? Again, we have our pronouns. Tell me who said who to whom. Figure it out. He said, send me away. Why? Because it's morning. And he said, who? I don't know, I guess the other guy. But who's the first guy? I'm not sending you away until you bless me. What? Bless me? You came to battle me. You wanted to kill me. You couldn't kill me, so you decided to maim me and dislocate me, so I shouldn't be able to walk straight for the rest of my life. I should walk with a limp. Now, I say to you, if it's me saying it to you, maybe it's you saying it to me, so I don't know. But if it's me saying it to you, I'm saying, I'm not going to send you away until you bless me. Well, if a gangster attacks somebody in a dark alley in the middle of the night, either you punch them in the nose, you run away, you call 911. The last thing you do is ask for a bracha. I will not send you away until you bless me. And again, I don't even know who said this to who. Next pasik, love, and he says to him, and you stand, you gotta know who's speaking to who. Mashmecha, what's your name? One second. I asked you for a blessing. So give me a blessing. No, 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 no. First I gotta know who you are. You don't know who I am? So you came to attack me in the middle of the night without knowing who I am? What's going on? So you don't know who I am? You didn't know my name? Really, you did not know my name. You're asking me for my name after you tried to kill me, after you made me, after you wounded me. And besides, we're not talking about names. I asked you for a blessing. Vayoymer, and he says, Yaakov. Ooh, so now I figure out. It was the Ish, the man who asked Yaakov, what's your name? So he said, Yaakov. But till the answer, we don't know who's speaking to whom. Just like we didn't know who wounded whom until it said Yaakov was wounded. Chavtes, he finally speaks up and says, Oh, you told me your name? And you wanted a bracha? I'll tell you what we got to do. We have to change your name. Really? You come to attack me, you want to kill me. You wound me. I tell you I want your blessing. You ask me for my name and then you say, It's time to change your name. 
Yaakov is not your name for you. It has to be Yisrael. You know why? Because you battled with God and with men and you prevailed. Now Yaakov does what we all do. And what's your name? <laughs> right? After you ask me for my name, I say, and what's your name? And you say your name. And this guy says, what are you asking such stupid questions? I don't understand. You ask me what's my name is legitimate. I tell you my name and then you change my name. You have the chutzpah to change my name. Then I ask you, what's your name? And here is the only time we know who asked whom. In Pasuk Lamed, it says, Vayish al Yaakov. Every other verse, you got to guess who is addressing whom. Here, finally, it gives me a name. And by the way, the name that was just changed. <laughs> the name that was just changed. Your name is not Yaakov, your name is Yisrael. Oh, wait, 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 why you shall Yaakov? Yaakov, which is the old name, says, what's your name? And this fellow says, it's none of your business. Or actually, why are you asking such a question? As though names are completely insignificant when you just decided that I have to go through a name change, but you will not share with me your name because why would you ask my name? And at the end, finally, we're done? Okay, and here's a blessing. By Yivarech Sham, here's a blessing. And all Yaakov can say about this scene is that he saw God face to face. Ra'isi alaykim panim el panim. And the sun finally has risen, but he's limping. According to some interpretations, the Gemara brings a Masech Techul and it says, The sun has risen for him, specifically for him, and it had the healing ability of helping him walk straight again, even though the text is not clear about this. There's a famous expression of the Ramban, Nachmanides, who lived in Spain in the 13th century, and he writes in Bereshis, Hatoira medaberes betachtoinim, viroimezes be'elyoinim. It's a very powerful statement. It means that the Torah addresses tachtoinim. The Torah addresses the physical reality, but it alludes to the higher reality, which means that every story has the surface of the story, the story the way it's from the surface perspective, but there's also a higher plane of interpretation. There was another great halachic authority and great Kabbalist, a few centuries later, he lived in Italy, in Fanu, Italy. His name was Rabbeinu Menachem Azaria of Fanu. He's known in Jewish history as the Rameh Mifanu, or Rameh Mipanu, Rabbeinu Menachem Azaria of Panu, or Fanu, Italy. He authored many works. One of them is called Asara Ma'amoras, the Ten Utterances, very uh, profound work in Jewish uh, Jewish teachings, ethics, spirituality, Kabbalah, Musr, Machshava. And he says there, I quote, Hatoira medaberes be'elyoinim v'reimezes He reverses the terminology of the Ramban. The Ramban says the Torah is addressing the physical reality and it's alluding to the spiritual reality. And the Ramban Mifanu says, no, the Torah is actually addressing the spiritual reality. In other words, every story is really a spiritual story. Every story is a sim- is, is symbolic, it's allegorical, it's metaphoric, it's representing a spiritual idea. But it alludes to, it hints, it intimates, remezes to the physical story. Now the Ramah does not mean that the stories did not happen, Khalila. The Gemara says, Ein mikri 
we always interpret the psukim first and foremost literally. But he's saying, you should understand that that's an additional layer, an additional level. It's actually primarily addressing the spiritual story. Are there Amban and there Ameh arguing? Perhaps they're not arguing. Perhaps they're speaking from different perspectives. Perhaps they're wearing different glasses, different prescriptions. And you can look at a story and you say, this is really a, a spiritual story. You can look at a story and say, this is a physical story that alludes to a spiritual story. I am going to address this story on two different levels. Elyoinim and Tachtoinim. And I'm going to paraphrase the words of the Rameh, but a little bit with a different twist. And I'm going to say, The Torah is addressing Elyoinim, including Yaakov Avinu, who was an Elyoin. Yaakov is one of our patriarchs, just as Leah, Rachel, Sarah, and Rivka as our matriarchs, were people, as the Medrash puts it, Ha'avais Heinein Hamerkava, meaning they were people who were profoundly entuned and aligned with their own divine essence and with the divine core of existence. Which means there's a certain awe and reverence and respect that one must employ when they learn about all of these characters. Because you're not, so sometimes I hear people giving uh, explanations on Chumr stories that are interesting, but they're almost projections of their own trauma. <laughs> and I appreciate that people have to heal from their own trauma. We all have to. And it's very good to find inspiration to heal for that trauma. But there's also a certain amount of awe and respect that is necessary to appreciate the fact that there may be an angle here that's justified, there may be a perspective here that is very useful, but it may not be the full story, and there's probably, and not probably, certainly, much, much more. I want to address the story on these two levels, on the level of Elyonim and on the level of Tachtoinim. Or to put it differently, I want to address the story from my experience or from our experience. In other words, I'm using the story as a model, as a metaphor for our own experiences right here, betachtoinim. And our experiences in life are complex, complicated, sometimes filled with challenges and turbulence and toxicity. But I want to address the story from that perspective, and I know that it's bringing it down to a place of tachtoinim. And perhaps, as the Ramah says, it's only a remez, it's only a hint but it's a hint that becomes extremely insightful and illuminating for life. Following that, Be'ezer Hashem, I want to address it from a higher place, from an Elyonim place, or maybe to address it from a place that's more descriptive of Yaakov Avinu himself and his relationship with Esau. So in the first explanation, I'm using the story Yaakov Avinu the way it mirrors our lives. That's why I call it Tachtoinim. And then I want to address it more from Yaakov Avinu's life himself, the way it's revealed to us in our sacred sources of throughout all of throughout all of the generations. First, we're going to do a little numerology, just to uh, put in another ingredient as we uh, prepare the delicacies. Numerology, okay? Let's take the name Yitzchak. He is the father of Yaakov and Esav. Yitzchak is Yud is 10. Every Hebrew letter is also a number. Yud is 10 and Sadak is 90. And Ches is 8 and Kuf is 100. Together that makes 
208, right? Kuf is 100, Tzadik and Yud is another 100, 90 and 10 plus Ches 8, 208. 208 is a significant number. It makes up eight times the name of Hashem. The name of Hashem is Yud and He and Vav and He. Yud is 10. Don't shut down on me, it's going to be clear. Yud is 10. <laughs> I know my customers. Yud is 10, He is 5. Vav is six, He is five. And if you listen, it's going to be a rewarding experience, I promise you. Be'ezer Hashem. Yud is ten, He is five, Vav is six, He is five. Five and ten, five, ten and five, of course, is fifteen. And six and five is eleven. Fifteen and eleven is twenty-six. How much is eight times twenty-six? Two oh eight. Uh, did you really figure that out? Okay. I was looking for the math experts here. Okay, good. Very good. If you don't believe me, you can believe her. If you don't believe her, you could check your calculator. 8 times 26 is 208. Okay. So Yitzchak is 8 times the name of Hashem. Okay, granted. What am I supposed to do with that information? Information. Now, I look at Yitzchak's son. Yitzchak had a son, Yaakov. Yaakov is Yud, Ayin, Kuf, Beis. Kuf is 100. Ayin is 70. Yud is 10. So that's 180. 182. 182 versus 208 is what? Missing 26. Meaning Yaakov is seven times Hashem's name. Wow. So something happened here. From Yitzchak to Yaakov, one of those units of 26 of God's name got lost. Well, Yaakov was a successor of Yitzchak. Yaakov is the third patriarch. Yaakov is the inheritor, the inheritor of Yitzchak. Yaakov is the one who continues the monotheistic Abrahamic revolution of Avram and Yitzchak. Yaakov is called the Bachur Shaba Avais, the Medrash says, the choicest of the Avais, of the forefathers. But the Havaya, the Yutkevavke, gets degraded from eight to seven. What happened to it? So we go searching. We go searching. And where do we search? We search. In the family, we search in other offspring. So we go to Esav. Well, Esav is really 376. Esav is Ayin and Sin and Vav. Ayin is 70. Sin is 300. And Vav is 6. So it's 376. So it's way above Yaakov, way above Yitzchak. What is 376? Well, 376 turns out to be a very interesting number because... Let's take the word Tame. The word Tame is Tes Mem Aleph. Tes is 9, Mem is 40, Aleph is 1. That's 49 plus 1, which is 50. How much is 7 times Tame? How much is 7 times 50? 350. But Esav is 376. So what do we have? So we have 7 times Tame and Hashem's name. Ooh. So the 8th, the 8th, time of Hashem's name that was indicated in Yitzchak's name, seven of them went to Yaakov, and one somehow went to Esav. But Esav has something else. Seven times the word Tameh. Plus one time the name Yitzchak. So let's summarize. Yitzchak has eight times the name of Hashem. Yaakov has seven times the name of Hashem. Esav has seven times the word Tameh, but one time the name of Hashem. Just keep this as an exhibit 
which, uh, please, in your minds, Be'ezer Hashem, we will get back to it, Blinader. I go now to the Tachtoinim, and I'm going to describe a story of many of our lives, or some of our lives. I'm going to use the Torah as a paradigm and a mirror for that story, at least as a marshal. If we use Yaakov as a metaphor for our own lives, and every story is a reflection of our own lives, that's the point of the stories. The Zohar says, Torah comes from the word Hayra'ah, a lesson, a teaching. It's not just history. Every story is a lesson for life. If it's not a lesson, it wouldn't be written because we don't know so many stories of the characters of the Hebrew Bible. We know very few stories, only those stories that constitute vital and indispensable lessons to life. And we look at a profile that emerges, and again, I'm, I'm saying disclaimer numerous times because I don't want my words should be misconstrued. I'm using these stories and applying them as mirrors for human struggles and many human experiences. When we look at Yaakov's life and we paint a picture from our perspective, we see a pattern. The pattern is so powerful because it's the only way we can justify the name Yaakov. The first thing we know about him is he's in a womb with his brother and as they both emerge, Yaakov comes out holding on to the heel of his brother. Now, if that happened in your family, what would everybody say? The nurses would say, so cute, so cute. Today there would probably be a picture. It would go on WhatsApp to the whole family. This cute little, little Pitsinka infant whose mamish just just breathed his own and just emerged to a new world, but somehow he was clinching on with that little cute angelic hand, the heel of Asa. But somehow in that family, this wasn't just cute. This became his name. It's like, whoa, this is your name. So when he's growing up and everyone says, oh, Yaakov, that's an interesting name. What does it mean? Oh, it means a heel. Wow. That's a very interesting name for parents to give their child. A heel. Yaakov, a heel. Why did they name you a heel? Sorry for my Brooklyn accent. Why did they name you a heel? Oh, because I was holding on to my brother's heel. Oh, it's not even your own. No, it's my brother's heel. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. This is my name. This is my identity. I hold on to your heel. I hold on to my brother's heel. It's almost as Rashi says, don't go out before me. <laughs> I got to go out before you. Don't go out before me. I'm like Mamish almost stopping him consciously or subconsciously or instinctively, or the body holds the score. Somehow the body knows to hold on to that heel. If we have doubts about it, the story moves on, and Asaph comes home one day from the field, and he's starving, and he's thirsty, and he's agitated, and he's exhausted. And Yaakov happens to be a great chef, and he sees the food, and he asks Yaakov for a little bit of lentil or lentil soup or lasagna or, or pizza or sushi or whatever the comparison you want to give. And Yaakov looks at him and says, I need your birthright. I asked you for sushi. <laughs> I need your birthright. Really? Yeah, and Esau says, I'm dying anyway. I don't need my birth. Take my pchaira. I need. It's almost like Yaakov, once again, is holding on to the heel. 
You went out ahead of me then, but I really need your birthright. I got to be the oldest in this family. And if we doubt this pattern, there's only one more story we know about these two brothers. There's only three stories we know about them. The first two I mentioned, what's the third one? Third one is, Yitzchak is getting old, and he calls an Esav, and he says, go bring me food. Make them, make the, prepare the food like I love, my soul loves, so I can bless you before I die. And what happens? And Rivka persuades Yaakov to go devise an entire plan where he now dresses up like Esav, brings the food that his mother prepared, goes into Yitzchak. Yitzchak says, who are you, my son? And he says three words, Anoichi Esav Pchirecha. First he held on to his heel, then he took the birthright, and now he says, at last, I am him. I'm Esav, your oldest son. He wants to feel him, and he feels, he feels the clothes of Esav. He says so clearly, Hakol kol Yaakov, I'm feeling, I'm touching the hands of Esau. And he gives him these grand, famous blessings of Those are the three only vignettes, the only three stories we know about Yaakov and Esau and their relationship. And the next scene, it's one of the most emotional scenes in all of Torah, no question. Esau walks in, he. Yaakov walks out and Esav walks in with the food, confident, excited, enthusiastic, cheerful. He says, let my father stand up and enjoy my delicacies that I just hunted so I can get a blessing. And Yitzchak is overtaken by a violent sense of trembling. Who is the one? who went to hunt, brought the food, and I blessed him before you ever came. And when Esav hears this, he breaks out in a thunderous cry. He lifts up his voice and he weeps and says, please bless me too. And Yitzchak says, your brother came deceitfully. He took your blessing. And Esau turns to his father and says, that's why you called him Yaakov, huh? That's why you called him Yaakov. He has outsmarted me, manipulated me twice. He took my birthright, and now he took my blessing. And of course, it's the same word with one letter difference. One with the letter, the order of the letter swapped. Pchayrasi and Bir Chasi. That's why you called him Yaakov. Yaakov means a heel. Yaakov also means outsmarting someone. La'akov, it's like cutting somebody off. New York style on the highway. You get ahead of them. You're behind, but suddenly you, 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 you seize the weak moment. They weren't looking. Boom, you're in the front. But that's just on a highway. Then you have it in life. He has done this. He squirreled me out. He outsmarted me, manipulated me. This was sly. He did this twice to me. Esau, of course, doesn't remember what happened in the womb. Only Yitzchak and Rivka know about that one. And the people standing there, he was too young. But that's why he was called Yaakov. You guys really had a, you really had an instinct, a vision of this boy. And he cries and he says, but you promised me a bracha. Yitzchak blesses Esav. 
but not without the Torah concluding the story, Esav developed a hate, Vayistoim, an animosity to Yaakov, and he said, in his own heart, he said, I will wait till my father passes, Vaharga, and then I will kill my brother. He desires revenge, or he feels he can't live in the same world like his brother. With the danger of stripping the story from some of its aloof and sublime sanctity, I want to go to the realm of Tachtoinim, which is certainly at least alluded to in the story as the Ramah, and ask ourselves to think of these profiles, these stories, these depictions. In the lives of human beings, what is the pattern that is developed here? What is the simple, concrete, but psychological and profound pattern being developed here? We have here almost a reflection of a story of a person who simply could not really embrace themselves. They could never truly be comfortable with their own identity. At every stage of the game, there is something in you that I need. Somehow I feel incomplete if I cannot have what you have. There is something in you that I need and ultimately translates into that deep yearning of being you, if I can only be you. Whether it's a brother to a brother, whether it's a brother to a sister, whether it's the complexities in the world of psychology between children and parents, Freud's uh, odious complexes and libido complexes, whether it's crushes that people have on other people as teenagers or later in life, whether it's deep conditions that people carry in their hearts, I look at somebody else's life, maybe a brother, maybe a sister, maybe a cousin, maybe a friend, maybe even a spouse, maybe a relative, or maybe a stranger. And somehow, you represent to me the dream of what I would love to be. Uh, Richard Nixon, during the Watergate scandal, would have been impeached, and he resigned. His Secretary of State was a Jewish young man. Today he's not so young anymore, he's only 96. His name is Henry Kissinger. Remember Henry Kissinger? He's still around. Henry Kissinger was a, is a German Jew, a secular German Jew, smart fellow, <laughs> a Yiddish cup, whether you like this politics or not. And uh, he describes the night before Nixon resigned, not last night in the office. And Nixon and Kissinger left the White House in the middle of the night. And Richard Nixon stopped at a portrait of Kennedy, John Kennedy, President Kennedy. Nixon and Kennedy were rivals for many, many years, bitter rivals. And Nixon starts speaking to the portrait as though Kennedy was, even though Kennedy was shot 10 years earlier. But he spoke to Kennedy as though he was living. And Kissinger is watching this and he says, John, why is it that the American people love you and hate me? Because everybody loved Kennedy. 
for whatever reason, Camelot, Kennedy family, untouchable. Nixon's, the Nixon, the Nixon wasn't very popular. Why is it that they love you and they hate me? He says, John, I'll tell you why. When they see you, they see what they would like to be. When they see me, they see what they are. Profound commentary in life. Do I feel, if only I had this person's looks, this person's money, this person's mouth, this person's brain, this person's family, this person's marriage, this person's car, this person's personality, demeanor, persona, characteristics. If only I had all those blessings and characteristics, my life would then be a blessing. If only I didn't have to endure this type of mother, this type of father, this type of teacher, this type of sibling, this type of community, this type of personality challenge. My height, the color of my eyes, the color of my hair, my dealings with weights, my, 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 not weights, my struggle with weight, my struggle with this addiction. We compare ourselves. I look at you, I look at your house, I look at this person's physique, I look at this person's personality. First, I want to go out ahead of you. Then I need your birthright. And then I need your blessings. And I could walk around the world in a game called the blame game, meaning if only I did not experience these circumstances when I was five, when I was 10, when I was 20, I would be such a success story. I would be such a happy person. My life would be so full of bliss. But what should I do? I didn't have those brains, or I didn't have that capacity, or I didn't have that prowess, or I didn't have this opportunity, especially if negativity came yet into my life. And sometimes I can walk the face of this planet always with those stories, with those voices in my head. This brother Asov, who was somehow the object of my envy, whom I want to be. <laughs> in fact, you know why they call him Asaf? The word Asaf comes from the word, anybody knows? Asui. He was complete. He came out and he was like, wow, this kid got it. Kulay Kaderiseyar. He was like almost mature. Vayav Yitzchak Asaf And Yitzchak had a special liking for Asaf. He was a macher. <laughs> He was a successful fellow. He was out in the field. He was street smart. Esau was no pushover. Yitzchak just likes this kid. Also, he's like, he got it. He's made it. Literally, the word made it is the English for the word Esau. He made it. And then I look at me. And sometimes I'm trying to compensate my whole life for that. I asked once a friend, I said, why do you work so hard in your business? You work so hard. You spend 18 hours a day in the office. And after years of working on himself, he told me something I'll never forget. He says, I never felt valued. I never felt liked. I never felt that I have really any significance. So I'm going to force all those people in the office to acknowledge how valuable I am. I'm going to force it. Which means, now this is, this is quite, this is self-awareness of a high level. 
Sometimes a person could be working hard their entire life, not even pursuing who they are and what they want to be, but simply trying to force, to force upon the reality something that will help them fill their void, distract them from their pain. It may be they're working day and night to get some type of validation to fill and ease that enormous void and pain, and they don't even know it, which means their entire life is about escapism. I never go back to my wound. I just cover it up and I try to distract myself from it and create false substitutes that I hope will make me stop feeling my wound, but of course only intensify it. Two things happen as a result of this. Number one, you could never have a real relationship with yourself. You're always in a fantasy relationship with somebody else. Number two, the other person can't really deal with you. Such a person also cannot look themselves in the eyes. They can't look anybody else in the eyes. Because I could never, ever really be me. I always have to have a mask. I always have to masquerade myself. I can't walk in this world tall, confident, self-contained, wholesome. I'm always hiding because my natural self is the stuff of disgust. My natural self, I loathe. That always has to be in hiding. I must always dress up physically and even more emotionally. The picture of Dorian Gray. For those who remember that story, I will always dress up. I cannot walk with the inner sense of pride and dignity because that self I have to hide, I have to bury very profoundly. The anxiety this creates, I can't even tell you. Those sitting in this room who understand what I'm talking about or feel what I'm talking about, you don't have to raise your hands, but you know what I'm talking about. Those who are dismissive of my words because they don't relate to you at all and you don't even understand what I'm saying, I would ask of you to think about this when you're alone in a very honest way. And those who really don't relate to it, great, you could leave. There comes a point in my life where I have to confront this if I'm to ever emerge. And I take you back to our story here, and again, I'm using this story, B'tachtainim, as a reflection of human life. And I ask you to answer this question. If I start off a scene in a story, you are alone, you are alone. You are alone in this tent. (laughs) I know you're not, but theoretically, you are alone in this tent, you are alone in your home. Alone, alone, alone. And a person wrestles with you until dawn break. What am I trying to tell you? Huh? That you're crazy, one interpretation, but assuming you're not completely crazy. Give me another interpretation. Very well. It's the most sophisticated and powerful way of saying, of course you're alone. The person you're struggling with is yourself. You're alone. 
but you're alone with so much going on in you. You're not alone with one person. You're alone with so many people. Isn't that your tragedy? And at last, in the middle of the night, only in the middle of the night, only in the middle of the night will this happen. It will never happen in the middle of the day. In the middle of the night, you're alone. But of course you're not alone. There's somebody battling. And he sees that he can't defeat you. Tell me who. No, it doesn't make a difference. It's all inside of you. I don't care if it's he or he or he or she or he or she. It's all inside of you. And he wounds your sciatica. Who? I don't care who. It's all one person. But Yaakov's sciatica gets dislocated. Suddenly, there's one man here. Yaakov is wounded. And he says, send me away. It's morning. Who? I don't care. (laughs) It's irrelevant. It's you. Send me away. Send me away. Stop holding on to me. And he says, not this time. I've been sending you away every night. I've been sending you away. That's why I've been binging. That's why I eat potato chips and cookies. That's why I drink. That's why I gamble. That's why I'm always with my phone surfing the web. That's why I have another thousand addictions. I've always been sending you away. That's my motus operando. Distractions, 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 distractions. I cook. I eat. I quetch. I read, but I'm running. I'm not sending you away. Until you bless me. You bless me? Yeah, yeah, you see, I never got a blessing from you. I forced my brother to bless me. I forced my father to bless me. I forced the world to bless me. There was only one person who never blessed me. Me. I never blessed me. Everybody loves me. I forced them to love me. I have great masks. I'm very talented. And trust me, I have learned how to do it well. I have perfected my skill. I know where to go. I I know where not to go. I know how to dress in which circles. I know what to say to whom. I even became a good schmoozer. Winston Churchill said in the middle of the Second World War, in a time of war, truth is so precious, it has to be protected by bodyguards of lies. Well, I have perfected that skill because for me, it's always a time of war. When you look at me and you're talking to me, you're never talking to me because I don't talk to myself. You don't talk to me. I don't let anybody go to those places because I am not allowed to go to those places. There is too much shame. There is too much trauma. There is too much pain. I don't go there and I will not let you go there. I have sealed that lid four scores ago. Yeah, yeah, this is me. This is me, 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 me. My name is Jacob's son, so it's a little connected to Yaakov. I don't go there. I have sealed that lid. What did Lincoln say in the Gottesburg Address? How many scores ago? Four scores ago, right? Four scores ago. Four scores and seven years ago. Four scores ago, I have sealed the lid. Or in some cases, it's two scores ago or one score ago or three scores ago. I don't go there and you certainly don't go there. But there's only one person who never blessed me. And that's me. 
Vayoymerei Lavi says to him, what's your name? Who says to who? I don't care. It's you. What's your name? And he says, my name is Yaakov. He says, that's your name. Don't you think you need to discover another identity in you? A name is very deep. I know myself through my name. But in order to change my name, it means I have to know myself in a way that precedes my name, that transcends my name. Do you only know yourself through your name? Or can you actually change your name because your name doesn't own you, you own your name? So many of us speak to ourselves via our name. And I don't only mean the name, Chayim, Yankel, Shmerel, Zlata, Chayim, Rivka. I mean the name in terms of the, the, the stories you tell yourself, the identity. You, you check your, your, somebody once told me in the morning, he Googles his name to see how many times Google has him mentioned on the internet. So I check up my high school yearbook to figure out who I am. I know myself. Some people know themselves from the pictures they post on social media. That's how they know themselves. It's a very pitiful way of knowing yourself. It's the greatest level of ignorance. It's one of the most, uh, it's, I have very compassion, a lot of compassion. People who live their lives, their prime of their lives, they live on social media. Constantly posting about themselves and their pictures. It's like almost, I have to look at what you say to know who I am and what I'm feeling. How could you ever have a relationship with such a person? It's like, I want to, I want to run away from you. Especially if I'm the person you're trying to emulate. It's like, ugh. Get out of here. I, I want to kill you. Of course I want to kill you. I can't live in your presence. You don't allow me to live in my presence. It's back to the Kotzke Rebbe's famous line. You want me to do it? If I am I because you are you and you are you because I am I, then I am not I and you are not you. But if I am I because of I am I and you are you because you are you, then I am I and you are you. He was saying something very profound. If I am I because you are you and you are you because I am I. In other words, there's no I and there's no you. Your entire you is a response to my I. My entire I is a response to my you. Can you know yourself beyond your name? Sometimes I only know myself through my name, my physical name, my reputation, my standing in the community. This is my resume. I have a shtel. I'm this cat. You know, people have names. Names are meant for other people, never for yourself. You never know yourself through your name. Names are used for others, but names are only used for others if I have an I. If I don't have an I, I only use my name to know myself. And I really start believing it. And some people start actually believing it. They take themselves so seriously through their name. They can't even laugh at themselves anymore. And the worst thing happens when I start using religion to justify my masks and my camouflages because now I take God and I turn them into the ultimate cover-up. I always thought God was meant to help you expose reality. But sometimes God helps me 
cover reality even more. For example, some people will use religion as a justification never to be vulnerable and honest. It becomes like my emotions. I don't have emotions. This is what God says. It's a great crutch. And thus, it becomes almost a cover-up that's etched. It's etched into your psyche for eternity because you're employing the power of infinity to justify it. He looks at him and says, you want your blessing? You need to change your name. You can't be Yaakov anymore. You need a different name. Yaakov means to outsmart. Yisrael is two words. Yashar. Kale. What does Yashar mean? Yashar means straight. Stop hating yourself. Stop loathing yourself. Stop blaming yourself. Stop being so afraid of your inner experiences, of your inner weaknesses. Be a master of your life. Yaakov also means a heel. And Yisrael stands for two words, Li Roish. My head. Or Sar Kale. Sar is a prince, a leader, like a minister, a Sar. Rashi himself says, Yisrael means that the blessings will not be given to you through deception. They will be given to you through shrara, through aristocracy, through royalty, through exposure. Bishrara begiliponim is what this man was telling him. According to this interpretation, this inner man. You have prevailed with God and with men. You have fought with God and men and you have prevailed. Don't run from every fight, including don't run from your own fight. Don't be afraid to look at yourself. Don't be afraid to see all of those emotions, to see the trauma, to see the toxicity, to hear those voices that make you duck, that turn you into a little squirrel, that you always feel like a squirrel, that you have to squirrel your way through life. I have nothing against squirrel. Squirrels. Squirrels. I just watch them sometimes in the morning on my porch, and I say, I don't want to live like that. I run, and then I see you, and I run again, I run again, and they're very clever. Now, they're doing what they're supposed to do. I don't want to be that person. Yashar, I want to look you in the eyes. I want to look everybody in the eyes. Most importantly, I want to look myself in the eyes. I want to be able to look at the mirror and not have to blink emotionally. I want to be able to look at God in the eyes. And God is the substitute word for truth. I want to be able to look truth in the eyes. People speak about Olam HaEmes. When a person dies, they go to Olam HaEmes, the world of truth. Where is that world? We say when Yaakov came into Yitzchak, the Ganeidin walked in with him. Esav walked in, the Gehenim walked in. So the Asara Mamaris, Ramami Fanu says, every person walks around with their Olam HaEmes around them. For one person it's Ganeidin, for another person it's Gehenim. Olam HaEmes doesn't start in Olam Haba, it starts in Olam Haza. Olam Haba is just Olam Haza without cover-ups. That's it. I don't live in Olam HaEmes there, I live in Olam HaEmes here or in Olam HaSheker. Every person walks around, he says, in your Dalar Amas, in the four cubits around you, the six feet around you, there is either Ganeidin or Gehenim. That's why you'll see some people, you're in their presence and there's a halo around them. You can feel it. You know what I'm talking about? There's a halo of light, and sometimes there's a halo that makes you awkward and uncomfortable. You don't even know what it is. They may not know what it is. 
there was a yeshiva bacher, and he once, he was learning in yeshiva, and he once went to visit, he went for a private audience with the Lubavitcher Rebbe in, uh, on 770 Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn, New York. It was a night of Yechidus, he would see hundreds of people, and he goes into his room, and the Rebbe asked him a question about his life. He was a teenager, and he answered. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe looked at him, and I find this to be a very affectionate response, I have to tell you. And he tells this yeshiva bachay, I'll say it in Yiddish. He says, Di dalad ames, zaynen dalad ames von emes. Geyarois, nema rab de levushim von sheker. Und wenn du bist fertig, weil der emes, sollst du reinkommen. These are four cubits of truth here. If you want to have a conversation here, go out, remove your garments of lies. And when you're ready to dawn garments of truth, come back in and we'll continue the conversation. And that was the end, that was the end of the encounter. Sometimes the most powerful and healthiest thing you could tell somebody who's ready to hear it. Sometimes a person is not ready to hear it. So where is this Eulam Hamas? It's right here. I create my own future world. In the future world, I can't cover up anymore. But that world is right here today. Am I operating on a level of integrity, authenticity, truth, MS? Or am I busy manipulating and exploiting the ganze Welt? And most importantly, myself. And as somebody once said, the Eberste Nightmanished up, the Welt Nightmanished up, Menard Zichap, Menard up Menish Vizichalain, versus the Kunst as a Nar, Nar, Tanar. You'll never fool God. You won't even fool the world. The only one you fool is yourself. So what's the big deal that a fool deceived a fool? <laughs> this comes from a man named Reb Shmuel, the Rebbe Maharash, the fourth Chabad Rebbe. Vos is the kunst as a nar, nar top a nar. It's a good line to live with. God, you're not going to fool ever. The world, you'll fool them some, what do they say? Some of the people, talking about Lincoln, some of the people, some of the time, all the time, all the people, some of the time. At some point, you're not going to fool the world either. You know, Bernie Madoff's Panzai schemes last for years, but at some time, at some point, it ruptures. The balloon pops. But myself, I could fool. And that's why we drink. And that only mean alcohol. Everyone drinks in their own way. It's called inebriation, intoxication, addiction, distractions. What is it? I'm busy fooling myself and maintaining the lie. What's the big deal that a fool deceives a fool? You get the Nobel Prize for a fool deceiving a fool. Now, Yaakov turns to him and says, What's your name? Yaakov turns to him and says, what's your name? And all he says is, why are you asking? This is always what happens at the end of the story. It's one of the most powerful moments. Yaakov, the one who had the old name, whose name just got changed, turns to him and says, what is your name? Who is he speaking to? We know who he's speaking to. He's speaking to himself. What is your name? And he says, why are you asking? I just told you what your name is. I just told you what my name is. Yisrael. But you're still doubting it. You still can't accept it. That's how deep the trauma is in people's lives. I will always fall back on it. I will always say, really? I could never really trust. I am so traumatized 
that even when I'm aware of it, even when I go through work and transformation, even when I can observe the voices of trauma that are trying to put me into a cocoon of self-hate and deception, I don't trust it. And when the voice of trauma comes back, I almost run into its embrace like the battered woman syndrome because that is the familiar life that I'm so used to. So after everything, Yaakov speaks up again and says, what's your name? I can't be called Yisrael, not me. I'm not a prince. I'm not free. I'm not a happy person. I'm the one who's supposed to be miserable. I'm the one who's supposed to quetch. I mean, that's almost on my tombstone. It's it's my destiny. I'm the one who's supposed to be in hiding my whole life. I'm supposed to be the one who was comforted with the fact that my life is miserable in this world, so in the next world, I'm going to be happy. I made peace with my misery, with my dysfunction. The only thing that's worse than dysfunction is making peace with dysfunction. The only thing that's worse than abuse is embracing it as your own, believing you deserve it, believing that it defines you, believing that this is who you are. The voice of Yisrael is the inner voice that transcends my name. It's the voice of freedom. It's the voice of Yashar Kale. I can walk straight because I'm with God. It's the voice of Sar Kale. It's the voice of Lee Reich. It's the voice that you are a manifestation of God's light in this world. How could you be embarrassed? So many people, I told this to you, I think last year, two years ago, so many people, they don't fear their inadequacy. Sometimes they equally fear their greatness. It's almost too good to be true. It's like I almost can't believe that I can be happy. I can be successful. I can have a great marriage. I can come home at night or in the morning and feel blessed to be in such a relationship. I can have an awesome relationship with my children. I can have a great relationship with God. It's almost too good to be true. That's for the novels. It's not for life. In life you have to quetch and be fahakt and verwundet and verschlochet and zerbrochen and zerschmettet and despondent and, and quetching and I'm almost, I, I died, I almost died, I'm about to die. And it's almost like if I have a good day, what is God planning for tomorrow? It's, it's too good today. No, no, this is bad news. This is bad news. It's like almost a relationship with self-abuse. God loves you. Would you look at your daughter and she comes home from school happy? And you're like, she's too happy today. What can I do to torture her so that tomorrow she can be miserable? Is that what any mother thinks? So why do people accuse God of thinking this way? I never get it. Like, just treat Hashem as you treat is your relationship to your own daughter. Not more, not less. It's like, I'm having a good day. Well, bad days are coming. Sometimes you fear your greatness. Change your name. You're not a heel. You're not an akev. You're a rosh. You're not a heel. You're a head. You're a sar. You're a free person. This is not about arrogance. It's about humility. You're the manifestation of God's infinite light and love in this world. That is who you are. Are there other voices in me? Of course there are other voices. There are other voices who say, I always have to have your life. I need you. I need your richness, your talent, your success, your looks, your brilliance, your marriage, your circumstances, your family. I always need that. Because me, 
me forget about and I reinforce it through my life, maybe for so many years. And at the end I say, what is your name? And he says, why are you asking my name? I told you, you're going to either accept it or forever cause yourself this agony. And finally he blesses him. And all Yaakov could say is, I saw God face to face and my soul was rescued. For the first time I could look at God face to face. And look at God face to face means, of course, look at yourself face to face. God is reality. Look at reality face to face. I don't have to turn. I don't have to uh, create a burrow like a groundhog and hide. You ever see those groundhogs with their burrows that they excavate? It's pretty cool stuff. But you don't have to live there. My soul was extricated. And the sun comes up. And Yaakov discovers. The difference between pre-Yisrael and post-Yisrael is, have I been limping or not? What does it mean to limp? What does it mean to limp? And I don't mean physically. We know what I mean. I'm talking about emotionally. There could be a person who limps, but they're not limping emotionally or the other way. When I limp, my limbs are all there, but my stature is not erect. What does spiritual limping mean? Spiritual limping means I'm always, forever. What's the word? I could never stand tall. Ever. I could never face anybody with my full dignity, with my full presence, because my presence in my mind is somehow very evil or very embarrassing. And therefore, I always have to duck. I always have to bend down. I can't approach life with my full stature. I could never have a conversation with full presence. I'm always thinking way ahead. How do I impress? How do I please? How do I not come across confrontationally? You ever do this? How do I make sure my, my words come out this way? How do I this? How do I that? How do I make sure he doesn't get upset? He doesn't get upset. She doesn't get upset. Your poor head. What goes on in that poor brain? Rather than stop limping, stand tall, stand straight, and let me have a piece of you. What's the next scene? The next scene is Esav appears, and he doesn't see Yaakov. He sees Yisrael. The moment he sees Yisrael, Esav runs over, he hugs him, he kisses him. They both weep. Yaakov can even prostrate himself seven times. He respects himself enough that he can truly respect somebody else. When you respect enough, when you respect yourself enough, you could really respect somebody else because it doesn't take away from your respect. If I can't respect me, respecting you can almost be like I'm losing my energy. I'm like, what are they going to think? What are they going to feel? I'm surrendering the surrendered wife, the powerless wife. The re- it's like, it's too much. I can't respect you. It's like, what about my ego? I'm so insecure that I have to protect my ego with so many lies. When you really respect yourself, not in an arrogant way, in a godly way, 
you can really respect somebody else. Like truly respect. You can respect them wholeheartedly. You could respect them for who they are. Because you respect you for who you are. And you know that in the world of divine truth, there's no competitiveness between who you are and who I am. That competitiveness only comes from delusional perceptions that put a blockage between me and truth. In the real world of truth, there is that perfect respect for you because there is that perfect and deep respect for me. Once Yaakov accepts Yaakov, you know what else happens? Esav accepts Yaakov. As long as Yaakov doesn't accept Yaakov, as long as Yaakov can't embrace Yaakov, as long as Yaakov can't be Yisrael, Esav is threatened. He's overwhelmed. It's toxic. I'm talking about me, remember. We're dealing with the story on a level of Tachtoinim, I told you. We're going to have to get to El Yoinim. We're not going to have time this week, but we'll have to get to the El Yoinim. Mazel Tov. After you internalize this, we're going to go to the next, okay? After you tell me you went through a name change, then we'll go to the next level. I don't mean you, I mean whatever. I mean the universe. <laughs> when Yaakov really embraces Yaakov, Esav embraces Yaakov, and Esav can also embrace himself. He could see himself in a greater way. He doesn't have to see himself as trying to get rid of Yaakov, because Yaakov is not taking his energy. Yaakov is Yaakov. Esav now has space for Yaakov. Wow, Yaakov is Yaakov. He's such an interesting brother. It's like almost, you look at the sibling and you say, wow, you're such an interesting person. I never saw you as a separate person. I see it so often in marriages. The marriages get so entangled and sometimes toxic, you don't see your spouse as an interesting person anymore. All you see them is as, as a powerful force that is always affecting your life in one way or another. Sometimes as a migraine headache, sometimes as something much worse, and sometimes a benevolent headache, and sometimes a little better. But it's like, even if, even in the good times, it's almost like, I'm always seeing you in terms of me. But when you can actually really, really love yourself and accept yourself, and I can, I can do that, I can look at you, wow, you're an interesting brother. You're an interesting person. You're like a person. You're not threatening me anymore. I don't have to destroy you for me to live. You're not taking away my nutrients in life. We're not competing over the same nutrients. As long as we're competing over the same nutrients, it's almost like I have to silence you to be able to emerge. I'm always have to figure out, I have to figure out how to position myself vis-a-vis you to survive. But now I don't have to do that anymore. When Yaakov accepts Yaakov, Esau can really accept him. I could look at my sibling. I could look at the other. I could look at my spouse. I could look at my child. I could look at my father, my mother. I can also look at God. And actually marvel. I can be in awe. I can experience respect. I can actually see you. Ponem el ponem. I never saw you before. I didn't even know who you were. 
because I didn't know who I was. How can I know who you were? I couldn't figure myself who, I couldn't figure myself out. So basically the you was just a tool in self-discovery. And whenever the you is a tool in self-discovery, I never know you because I never know I. When the self-discovery comes from a place that's extremely deep inside of me, suddenly there is an I and suddenly there is a you. It's not a coincidence that this battle not only created that moment of peace between Yaakov and Esav, it also gave the Jewish people their name. We are not called the children of Avraham. We're not called the children of Yitzchak. We're not called the children of Yaakov. Besides me. But everybody is called Bnei Yisrael. But that wasn't his natural name from birth. That wasn't the name he was given. We should be called Bnei Yaakov. Or better, we should be called Jacobson. That's really the name that all the Jewish people should carry. Talk about narcissism. <laughs> There's no other name. Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Yaakov. Jacob's land. You like that? But Eretz Yisrael, Am Yisrael, Torah Yisrael, Bnei Yisrael. It's always Yisrael. This moment must be so significant that this moment gave us our name for eternity. Till today we're called Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel. Our land is called Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, Yisrael. Why is this so critical? Because in many ways, you have here the full story of Jewish history contained in one sentence. One of the greatest challenges of the Jewish people from the day they became a people was this challenge. So often, the Jewish people felt, as many of them still today feel, if I can only be somebody else, if I can only look like my brother, dress like my brother, be as successful as my brother, be as free as my brother, be a hunter as my brother, be that complete, wholesome, healthy guy like my brother, Asui Esav, my happiness will be restored. Over the generations, one of the greatest challenges for the Jewish people was to truly embrace who they were. They always said to them, or they often said to themselves, if only I can get rid of that Jewish face, that Jewish nose, that Jewish style, that Jewish stereotypes. I will assimilate. I will intermarry. I will appease. I will out-Gentile the Gentiles. I will show them how normal I am, how integrated I am. I will become one of the greatest critics of Israel to show how objective I am. I will become more liberal than the greatest liberal living on the planet to show how open-minded I am, how empathetic, how sensitive. You think you're a left-winger? I'll show you how left a Jew can be. And then at last, at last, if I can don his clothes, live his life, the world will love me. And I will love myself. One of the most tragic errors Jews have made in their history, not knowing, not only will they never love themselves that way, nobody else will love them either. 
within themselves, it creates such confusion of identity. The worst thing you can do for your child is teach them ambivalence, not teach them who they are, not teach yourself who you are. There was a Jewish comedian, his name was Groucho Marx, Groucho Marx, and he said, I would never be a member of a club that would have me as a member. (laughs) If they admit Jews into the club, it's not for me, it's too Jewish. This was the agenda of so many Jews. The pride and the dignity of so many was when they were admitted into a club that would not admit Jews or blacks or dogs into the club because it means I made it. We made it. But but at a moment of truth, at a moment of truth, all the people who you appeased so successfully will stand up, look you in the eyes, and say, you're a stranger among us. It's all about the Benjamins. You ultimately have dual, dual loyalty. We will never trust you. Ever. Because we know who you are. You're a Jew. You're Yaakov. You're not Esav. And the sense of disappointment at those moments is so profoundly sad. It happened in ancient Judea, in ancient Assyria. It happened in Spain. And most tragically, it happened in Germany. This country from where the greatest venom and hatred to the Jewish people emerged, the country where Jews assimilated most successfully. Why? Why is it this way? It's because Winston Churchill said, appeasement when Chamberlain made peace with Hitler and said, we have peace in our time, 1938. And Churchill said, appeasement is feeding the crocodile in the hope that he will eat you last. Whenever I have to be not me in order for you to like me, not only will I come out wounded and limping, I won't even achieve it. Because if you have no space for me, you certainly have no space for me mimicking you. To the contrary, you will only despise me far, far deeper and far, far more. A world that has no space for Jews as Jews has no space for Jews who feign to be just part of humanity. To the contrary, The world respects Jews who respect Judaism. The world is embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by Judaism. Have a wonderful week. I still have to go back, I know. The Yoinim, the Gematria. Next week, important, next week I am in Eretz Yisrael, so there's no class. Next Tuesday, there is no class. I'm an Eretz Yisrael. The week after, there is. Back to Sarno. What is that? It's exactly that thing. Of the repressed, the repressed pain and trauma. Back to Sarno. Very good. Gidanosha. Back pain. Wow, nice. The divided mind. Hatzlacha, yeah. How come after Yaakov's name is changed, it wasn't consistent in the Torah that he's called a Good, good question.
Well, again, in terms of tachtoinim, in terms of tachtoinim, in terms of the way it applies to our lives, we vacillate. In different spaces. We vacillate, yeah. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.